Welcome to another episode of the Being and Doing podcast, uh, where I try to create space dedicated to the unique minds that are all around us and bring you a series of stories that will hopefully challenge, inspire, and somehow stimulate your being. And today I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Randy Shackman. Um, And my impression of him, which I don't know if I've ever shared, is that uh, it's a person driven by extreme curiosity, but also uh, immense generosity and interest for being support uh, for young generations. And I appreciate that as a young uh, career scientist. And I'm very curious to get to know what are the drivers between, be, behind the things I have sensed uh, about you, Randy, and um, what, is, what are all other things that you are interested in beyond science, which I may not know about. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Alexandra. Happy to be with you today. So uh, the first question I always ask uh, all my guests is just to say something about themselves and maybe through several words that you might identify yourself with. Yeah, um, well, I'm uh, first and foremost a, a basic scientist. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about how cells work uh, at the molecular level. And uh, I've, uh, my entire career as, as a student and then uh, now as a faculty member has been focused on discovering basic processes. Um, as a student, I studied DNA replication and now in my independent career, I've studied membrane assembly. So uh, I, I do so with the, with the experience and now conviction that when you make basic discoveries, there will be practical applications for them, but my own work is not directed towards those applications. And I'm curious about uh, how did uh, research come to be part of your life and that basic curiosity? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't explain its origin. My fa- I grew up in uh, Southern California and uh, there were no scientists or educators or physicians in my family. Um, but I remember vividly when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, I had a toy microscope and I collected um, a, in a local dry riverbed, a, a, a jar of pond scum. <laughs> and I put a drop of this on a glass slide, and I was just captivated by the impression of uh, protozoa swimming around, crawling, eating. I mean, it was just uh, endlessly fascinating to me. I, uh, I was a real science nerd, and I spent hours and hours in my bedroom looking at these creatures. And uh, I, every year, I mounted a science fair project uh, at this, the local school, and that was my big moment of the year. And um, that, that uh, curiosity or passion uh, I took with me to, to university. I was an undergraduate student at UCLA. And um, I had a great freshman chemistry teacher and I did well in the class. And I was assigned to an honors section where the students were all expected to work in a research laboratory during the few weeks of that term. And that changed my life. I was initially intending to go to medical school but that one 10 week experience working in a lab, doing simple experiments really secured my, my, my future ambition to be an academic scientist. And I followed that path ever since. 
That's that's interesting. I'm finding uh, some resonance because I actually intended to be uh, a doctor as well because my dad was a doctor, and then I I went to a science school, and then I also felt that <laughs> it's endlessly fascinating to yeah. to be yeah. in the lab. Um, uh, um, I actually had a question about that fascination because I remember your talk about the first mutants uh, you have made with um, multiple exosomes inside the cells. Um, and remember this uh, image very vividly. And, and I just uh, wonder about that moment of you seeing that phenotype and maybe we could say what phenotype is for maybe sure, people who sure. don't know that. So when I, when I started my independent career at, here at Berkeley, our intention was to study the mechanism of uh, vesicular traffic, membrane assembly. And I chose to study this in yeast, although there really, really wasn't anybody studying that path, the secretory pathway in yeast. Um, and so I, I chose to use genetics, although I was not trained as a geneticist, but it was so easy to use genetics with yeast. And um, after some trial and error with a really wonderful first-year graduate student, Peter Novick, we found a, in a, just a collection of temperature-sensitive lethal mutants, we found a couple of clones that were that caused secretory proteins to accumulate inside the cell at the expense of their secretion into the cell wall. And um, we, we were able to show, based on physiologic experiments, that the cell simply stopped growing, stopped getting bigger. And, and the implication was that new membrane was not being inserted into the bud that allows the yeast cell to get bigger. And um, the pioneer in this field, uh, cell biologist from the mid middle of the 20th century, George Pilati, who was greatly respected, but with whom I did not, I had never studied, came to Berkeley for a visit. And uh, we talked about our initial results with this mutant. And uh, of course, he was a master electron microscopist. And he then encouraged my student, Peter Novick, to examine the cells by thin section electron microscopy. Of course, we were going to do that, but we rushed ahead and did that. And the magic moment came maybe in the summer of 1978. When I was in my office and Peter was in the basement of our building in the electron microscope room and he called me excitedly down to the microscope and there it was on the screen, an image of a cell that looked like it had measles. It was just full of vesicles. Whereas normally there are only a small number of vesicles underneath the bud portion of the cell. These cells just filled up with thousands of vesicles. And that image, which is uh, right now sitting on my and for the past 40 years has been sitting on my bulletin board here. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, it was a revelation. And uh, I, I was excited for days after that, realizing that that was, that was the key. And, and I would have my work cut out for me for the next 20 years to, under, to use genetics and then biochemistry to understand the pathway. So it was a, what, what I guess people call a eureka moment for me and uh, still, gives me goosebumps sometimes to so think about it. Yeah, so I always wondered, um, what does this eureka moment feel like in your body? What happens? Because it's, it's, it's a moment, but it's not really a moment in science. Mm -hmm. Feel for, many people see it as a moment, but we see yeah. it as the before and after, and the before is sometimes 20 years, sometimes 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, 
is is that is that a feeling of security? Is that a feeling of yeah. excitement? Is that a mixture of many things at the same time? Yeah. It was a it was a kind of a vindication because um, I had not had any experience in this in, in yeast and genetics and studying secretion. I I did a postdoc in a lab to to look at membrane aspects of membrane structure, and my grant proposal to the NIH based on my initial thoughts was was completely rejected because I had no ex relevant experience. And they th the, the, the review panel thought I was naive and ill-informed and all these things. But I guess I, you know, and that was kind of shook me to my core because I never had that experience. But, um, but I was confident that the path I was taking was going to work because Others had in the years earlier, like Paul Nurse at the Crick or Leland Hartwell in Washington, had used yeast to study the progression of events in the cell division cycle using temperature sensitive mutations. So the logic and the approach was all there in black and white, and it was just a matter of doing it. And uh, I can say that now because it worked. It worked very well. And then we spent the next year and a half isolating hundreds more of such mutations and were able to define a couple of dozen genes. And then we were off and running to figure out the biochemical molecular aspects of the gene products. Mm. So the, the, moment, the moment was really was a moment and it was just two years into my time as, a, as an assistant professor. So I was fortunate that it happened quite quickly, but it really was a moment in time. And I, at, after that, I, I just knew that we were on the right path and that I, I I had great confidence that we could ultimately solve it at a level that I would find satisfying. And I, I love that, that uh, I think that ties a lot about what we are going to talk around open science and uh, around how we value scientific idea and, and early career research paths. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just wondering, what do you feel was, who do you feel had the trust in you to give you the position regardless of, of this rejection by by the funding agencies, yeah. and what do you feel gave you the the sense of security to pursue something that was challenging? Yeah. Well, um, the grant was rejected before I had those results, but but after I had the job, I had I had a job as an assistant professor mm -hmm. at Berkeley, and um, I guess I got the confidence from a, a quite successful research effort as a graduate student. I was I was trained by a master biochemist. Arthur Kornberg, and I had the experience of watching him, the confidence that he brought to, to the research, rubbed off on the people in the lab. And we did things in studying DNA replication that most people would shy away from. I mean, it was you know breaking open cells and reconstituting a complex reaction in, in a broken cell preparation. That takes a certain amount of confidence to, to think that you could make any sense of this mess, but it, it works. And confidence really, really is important in pushing you forward. So I had I had confidence in my abilities because I'd made it work in a different context, and I was confident that I could make this work too. Um, and uh, so, what was the other part of the question? Who has supported you, even oh, yeah. though it's, right. um, it seemed it might not right. have been? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was um, I was very fortunate to get a position in the what was then called the biochemistry department here at Berkeley, and um, 
the people who had confidence in me uh, were uh, people who great biochemists such as Daniel Koshlin, who was uh, mm -hmm. the, the chair of the department here when I was hired, and uh, Bruce Ames, a really wonderful bacterial genetist biochemist, and they, they, you know, they gave me the space and the freedom to pursue what I wanted, and um, you know, it was up to me to actually make it work. And of course, when my grant was rejected, but before I had any any preliminary results, I, I'm sure they were quite they were getting worried. <laughs> okay. But but once we had that first mutant, Dan Cochlin in particular was incredibly supportive. He communicated that paper, that first paper in 1979 to the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And he, he got very powerful supporting reviews from scientists that encouraged this publication. And he was very encouraging thereafter. He would come and see and see me in the lab and say, you know, any more mutants and what's new? <laughs> and so he, he was great. He was a great, uh, he was a great uh, figure for me in terms of growth as a scientist. Uh, I had already, you know, I was already trained as a scientist. Mm -hmm. I got this, the skill set from Arthur Kornberg. But um, the idea that one should be open, communicative, and um, and collegial in a broader sense outside of one's own lab. I think that came from my experience with Dan Koshlin mm -hmm. and his, his influence on me. He, he, he taught me, I think, to be a, a citizen of science. He, he was much more than his own research. He was, for a while, he was the editor of, P, of the PNAS. And many, many years later, I became the editor of the PNAS. <laughs> he went on to become the editor in chief of Science Magazine for some years, did a great job there. And uh, he was a, a public spokesman, and and he was very supportive of the of the university, and mm -hmm. particularly public education in the University of California, and that that really rubbed off on me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also curious uh, about um, you said confidence, uh, but also I think what I heard while you were talking was scientific rigor, and yeah. uh, I wonder how do you balance between the doubt and the rigor, the questioning, and the confidence of going forward when things get difficult? Yeah. Well, I think that came from Kornberg. I mean, he was, um, he was, had the highest standards, absolutely the highest standards. And when, when you did something in his lab, you know, everything had to be just so. And he, you know, he, he urged a, a very strong work, work ethic. <laughs> he used to say a day, a day relaxing was a day wasted. <laughs> he expected people to work continuously. Uh, anyway, but he was, you know, very rigorous, and uh, I learned from him at least the biochemical aspects. But I also learned um, from him. I thought he was rigorous, but he was very narrow. Mm -hmm. He believed in using a purely biochemical approach, and he had a blind spot to genetics. He was very dismissive of genetics. Okay. He thought genetics was a lazy, lazy man's biochemistry. Uh, a real biochemist has to spend hours in the cold room purifying enzymes. And uh, I think that was a weakness in his success, and that played out in a event that occurred just as I started graduate school. The enzyme for which he'd won the Nobel Prize turned out 
though he assumed that it was the enzyme involved in DNA replication of the bacterial chromosome, it turned out to be a repair enzyme, not the replication enzyme. And that, and that, uh, that discovery, that realization came from genetics in, in a different laboratory. So that lesson really burned into me. The power of biochemistry, but coupled with genetics was a winning combination. That, that, that set my career path <clears throat> in the future, that, um, that appreciation. And the confidence came from, as I said, he had a, an innate sense that the way to solve a complicated problem was to take it apart piece by piece and put it back together with you know, purified components. And he had done that throughout his career. And it, you know, it was a force of will that we would do that again to reconstitute the more complex DNA replication reaction. And it worked. You just, um, it's hard to, hard to make sense of this, but um, that kind of thing, you know, if you're, if you're persistent and you look at a problem in many different ways, you know, you can you can usually make it make it work, and that 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 set set my path forward. Uh, what do you think have been challenges that you have faced, uh, and what do you think was your support uh, in in facing those and overcoming them? Yeah, well, the challenges were first my my funding situation at the at the outset was bleak. <laughs> my grant was rejected. I had very little money. You know, we were working on yeast that's relatively inexpensive. And then uh, when we first, when we got the first mutant after about two years or so, I wrote a, another NIH grant and that was funded. And then I, I've had funding ever since. So I overcame that. The other problem that I had was, and this is true of any beginning investigator in an academic setting, you know, we're trained to do experiments with our own hands, our own mind, but we're not trained to lead other people necessarily. Mm. And uh, so when I suddenly had students and when you're a beginning investigator, the temptation is to take students who express an interest and, and, and sometimes you take the, not necessarily the, the right people. I had, a, I had trouble uh, because of my inexperience in dealing with certain difficult personalities. Mm. And uh, that, uh, that caused me some grief, but I, I learned by trial and error. And um, the other thing that I realized, it seems obvious, but uh, my mentor at Stanford, Kornberg, was a tough guy. I mean, really tough. Yeah. He could be verbally abusive and you could get away with that kind of thing back then. And I had thick skin, so you know, it bothered me, but I, I, I got through it. And then when I started, initially I thought, I just have to be tough like that, you know, really demanding and, you know, tell my people they better work or, are, or I'm gonna kick them out or something, you know? And I realized very quickly that, that is, that's not my personality. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. I mean, I just, uh, it's too uncomfortable. So you have to realize, maybe obvious to other people, but what I realized is I have to optimize my own style mm. to be effective and not to try to adopt some other approach that is not, you know, I just, that I'm not comfortable with. Mm. So I found with time that I, you know, I had a good way and I could encourage people without being 
necessarily too, you know, uh, prescriptive to say, you know, do this or else. <laughs> I, I just don't do that. And I try to get people to be excited by, by being excited myself. Mm. And that works for many people. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for many people. Mm. Actually, that's a really interesting thing that uh, you met, you're mentioning, and it's how much we normalize verbal abuse or abuse in academia. Yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, I'm, I really appreciate you actually openly talking about that. And also, I'm wondering, how do you think that we can work around that now that we know better? Yeah, well, now, um... You know, when I started so long ago, young faculty who started were, you know, more or less, you're on your own. Here are four walls, some benches, maybe some money to get going. And then you're on your own. And if you make mistakes, they're, they're on you. But now um, I think the system is better equipped to help young people. And so beginning investigators wherever I go, always are assigned a mentor or select a mentor, a more senior person who's there to help with, you know, problems or questions. And, and if, you, if you avail yourself of that, then you, you maybe will make fewer mistakes and have mm -hmm. a, you know, so, you know, I'm happy to share my experiences with younger people if they're, if they're interested in listening. Mm -hmm. But when I started, there was no such thing. I mean, you know, they were there and they, they had expectations, but they didn't necessarily show me how to get through the, the difficult times. Mm. I had to learn that on my own. So I think it's easier now. The other thing that's easier now is um, in most, in, you know, in the best research institutions, certainly the Crick or here at yeah. Berkeley, a young investigator who begins has all kinds of funding made available to them. It's kind of like a dowry that you get when you start a laboratory. So you don't even have to write a grant right away. And when I started, I had zero, zero dollars. I had to scrape together any money that I could find to, to begin. So that's, frankly, I think it's much easier now. Mm. Much easier now to start. If you, you know, if you land a position in a, at a good institution, at a research intensive university, university or research institute, I think, boy, you know, um, everything is made available and so the success success is really more just a measure of your own ability rather than you know your 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 um, you know financial acumen and getting 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 enough money yeah and that still brings me to open science because uh, it is uh, although it looks very equitable when we talk about open science and the amount or the amount that science publishing costs it does sound like good science can be or something no i wouldn't say good science science that's published in high and high profile journals can be done in institutions like craig or like berkeley but maybe yeah. not in other places yeah. so um maybe you can outline the problem uh, in yeah. your own words and then we can continue talking about that sure. Well, um, in my own career, uh, for many years, my, work, my lab worked alone. I worked with my own team. There weren't other people in the department 
who were necessarily doing the same thing. There was a senior colleague I had who was a carbohydrate, a yeast carbohydrate chemist. And his knowledge and some of the things he did could have been very useful to me, but he was very closed. And um, his attitude was uh, he didn't want to seem to be propping me up before I had to prove myself to get tenure. Oh. Which, is, which I thought was a, you know, a terrible attitude. Yes. <laughs> and frankly, I almost left. I had an offer at Caltech and I almost left because of that. It was really very discouraging that he had this attitude. Um, in my career, even when I was just working on my own, I, you know, anybody who wanted to know anything I was doing, I was happy to talk about and I would share yeast mutant strains even before they were published because I always felt that if I just gave things out and then shared my knowledge, that I would learn more than I would if I kept things to myself. Yeah. So that kind of openness, maybe it's just part of my personality. Now the question of publication, now that's a, that takes us in a different direction. So let me tell you my personal evolution in that. When I was young, uh, as a graduate student and early in my independent career, I wanted my, my best publications to be in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It was a, <laughs> an outstanding journalist, I think it still is. And, and the decisions were all made by active scientists and members of the National Academy were serving to assist in the reviewing process. And then around the, the end of the 1970s, this um, new journal emerged called Cell with this uh, very uh, brash opinionated editor by the name of Benjamin Lewin, who had a certain skill set um, and he was a good business person. And he realized something that I don't think had been fully appreciated. And that is scientists are vain. You know, they like to, they like to think that they can do something that will make them more special than other people. And so uh, having a journal that caters to that vanity <laughs> was a brilliant idea. It, pro it provided a brand name to sell. And within a very short period of time, everybody that I knew, including me, were swept up in this. And I wanted my best work to be in sell. I wanted to be a member of that club. And so I was, you know, I mean, I was a, I was a victim of my own vanity. And uh, so all of my early papers were published in these so-called high-profile journals. And uh, it, never, it never occurred to me that, the, that this was changing the manner in which we were evaluating what was important for publication. And as a result, journals run by scientific societies and even the PNAS started to go down in terms of their... Uh, influence and the, the papers that they would that they would get for publication. And when I became the editor of the PNAS starting in 2006, I mean, I was already, you know, quite successful and I was secure. And I, I, I rejected instantly the notion that the journal would be evaluated by a meaningless number called the journal impact factor. This number had been around for decades and was, but was used by librarians to decide which journals to subscribe to. It wasn't ever intended to be a measure of scholarship. It was intended to be a measure of popularity. Popularity over a narrow window of time. And this dawned on me because my predecessor as the editor of the PNES was, was 
basically telling the editorial board to reject more papers because that would improve the impact factor. This was a common thought. It, all you have to do is just like Ben Lewin, just be more selective. And then people will flock to you because of that you know, perception of, of luxury. Uh, and I rejected that. And uh, I became convinced that this was taking academic science in the wrong direction. And then in 2011, um, I could have renewed for another five years as the editor of the PNAS, but I was offered the opportunity to start a new journal, eLife, with the support from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, the Wellcome Trust, and the Max Planck Society. And um, I jumped at the opportunity because I thought with the PNAS being an institution that had been in existence for over 100 years, it was very hard to make changes, very hard to make changes. Uh, and so the idea that you would have uh, open access for all was, or you know, not, not have to issue um, copyright licenses to, to authors, that was alien to them. And, but with a new journal and with a mandate to try to wrest control of the biomedical literature for scientists away from these commercial journals, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to give that a shot. So uh, it was great because I had enormous support from these founding institutions, plenty of money to do what I wanted to do. And we created uh, very early on a model of a review process that's, that's more open than in other journals, where, where an author submitting a paper has that paper evaluated by a few members of the editorial board. And if it's judged to be worthwhile, the paper is encouraged for full submission. And then a board member, together with two other outside scientists in that area, are asked to review the paper individually. And then the reviews are collected online. And the board member then opens up the, uh, an online chat, basically, between the reviewers and him or herself. And the reviewers are identified to each other. So you know when you accept to review a paper for eLife that you're going to have to defend your views on the paper in front of your peers, in front of people you know, generally. And be accountable. <laughs> and well, be accountable to, to, the, to the team of reviewers, if not yeah. to the author. Now, we don't insist that the reviewer be identified to the author, but we do insist that they be identified to the other reviewers. And then there's a period of a day or more where there's a back and forth online about you know, relative merits of the paper. And then the, the board member participates in this and is asked to write a, um, a, uh, a consolidated letter with just the points that, that the, the, re the reviewers feel must be addressed before the paper could be published. And so that, that that's a, was a twist on, the, on a, what other journals do. And some journals have adopted it, but the commercial journals, uh, and I, you know, I'd hoped, I think that eLife has been successful there, you know, the submissions keep going up. So I think it's been successful, but it has not blunted the, the branding power of the uh, so-called high profile journals because they, although they deny this, they continue to rely on this impact factor to measure their success and to evaluate their staff. And um, they, they have a commercial model that is uh, 
you know, economically a, a gangbuster for them. Elsevier has the largest profit margin of any corporation in the world. It does not in terms of magnitude of amount of money, but as a margin, they have a incredibly successful business plan. After all, they ask us to do their work for them. For exactly. Um, yeah. Which other, of course, other journals do that, but other journals don't charge a, a king's ransom to publish a paper. You, you don't know that as, a, as an investigator because typically those charges are issued, are paid by your institution. But now, since these journals are being forced to adopt an open access model, the investigators are gonna see how much they're being gouged to publish their papers in, in these journals. And so I, I reject, the, I reject the, that business plan and I reject the editorial policies of these journals because they hire professional editors who were trained as scientists, of course, but they're now frankly in the business of selling magazines. Mm. So they, of course they'll deny this, but they, they are, you know, they are, I'm sure they're being evaluated or promotion within the within the organization on the basis of their success in generating citations for papers that they review. Mm -hmm. And I find it, I'm, I must say, I find it very curious, very curious that journals that are run by scientific societies for the, for the benefit of their members, like, you know, the PNAS or the Journal of Biological Chemistry, when a paper is published in those journals, a member of the editorial board who ushered the paper through the review process typically has his or her name somewhere on the paper. You know, this paper was handled by so-and-so. So that's a, that's, a, that's a stamp, that's an imprimatur of the paper. You, you know, it may be wrong, but at least it, you know the, the person who is taking responsibility for this is a known entity in the field. However, with the commercial journals, the high profile cell nature and science, you will never find the name of the editor on the paper, even though you know, if you had the experience of going through the review process that you're dealing with an individual, that person is not named to the outside world. Why, why is that? Uh, I think it's because that would reveal how empty the review system is. These people are unknown. <laughs> they are not the editors who handle a paper at eLife or at the PNAS. They are not a known entity in the field. They are instead asked to handle papers in vast areas with most of which they have no experience with. So they have no judgment. They have to rely on a, a variety of outside reviewers who are not conferring with each other, typically, certainly not openly like at eLife. And they, they're faced with a multitude of things that they, these outside reviewers want to see done. And they don't have the judgment to discern which are usually, which, which comments uh, should be, should be uh, adopted by the, by the author. So, and yet young investigators will, you know, undergo years of stress and anxiety in multiple rounds of review just for the privilege, winning the lottery of getting their paper in nature. I think the system is broken and it's bankrupt because of the business plan and the review process at these journals. And by the way, I think a lot of the stuff that ends up getting published in these journals is, ends up being wrong. Uh, their, their accuracy rate is, and, you know, uh, is not better than, better than, than average. 
Yeah. And I think it's partly because of the review process. I mean, after all, you start off, you think the work should be published when you send it in. And then round after round of review, you have to add more and more stuff. And the supplemental material expands vastly beyond the capacity of the referees to read it all. Yes, yeah. And so what gets published, if it eventually does, is a lot of stuff that no one's seen. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of it ends up being wrong. Yeah. I mean, for me, the question there is, I do recognize the brokenness as someone who has been on the other side, but then um, I'm wondering if we are to be constructive when we identify a problem, what is yeah. it that we as young researchers can do? Because it still does have a certain impact on, on our careers. Okay. And, and, yeah. I know. I know. I think, but uh, although um, I think uh, what I have actually discussed with our librarian is that a lot of the time scientists don't exercise their power. Uh, and I'm wondering how can we promote ourselves yeah. taking the power yeah. and the expertise back into our yeah. hands? Well, um, I have um, a simple idea and then a more, more complex proposal. The simple <laughs> idea would be to insist that these high-profile journals name the, the editor of the paper on the published paper. And if they refuse to do that, I would ask the author of the paper that's about to be published to name that person in the first line of the acknowledgement section of the paper. Mm. And uh, I don't know if the journals would like that, but if, if everyone did that, we'd learn a lot about the whole process. Mm -hmm. And maybe as a result of that, these editors would be a little more um, reasonable or work harder to make judicious choices. I don't know, I don't know. But I'd like to see that done. I'd like to see that experiment. I'd like to, I've talked to the senior editors at these journals and asked them why they don't do this. And they say, oh, well, you know, we never thought of that. We'll talk about it, you know? And then of course they never do it. So that's one simple act. But the other act is just to not do business with these journals. Yeah, that's easy. Okay, that's now fun. you're gonna yeah. say, and I get this all the time. Oh, but you know, I'm a victim of the of the system that your generation created. I mean, I you know, if I want a career, I have to do this. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. Thank it you. Becomes self, <laughs> it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that everyone simply assumes. And it's true that review committees sitting around tables, you know, often will say, Oh, he's published three nature papers, he must be good. But these people need to be challenged to not make such useless evaluations based on, you know, an incorrect impression. Now, there are good examples of people who have eschewed the use of these journals in their entire career. I'm not a good example because I, you know, I was weak <laughs> and I published a lot of cell papers. But let me give you a, a brilliant example in Britain a member of this Parkinson network that, uh, that I'm involved uh -huh. in. His name is Dario Alessi. He's a great biochemist at uh, University of Dundee. And he has never published in these journals. And he's a member of the Royal Society. He's uh, a fantastic scientist. 
and recognized around the world for his skills. And he won't, he won't deal with cell nature science. He just doesn't, he has, he comes from a good working class background and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need this nonsense. Mm -hmm. So it can be done. People just have to have the courage of their convictions to do that. And then if more people did that, these journals would be forced to change mm -hmm. or lose, lose market share. Uh, actually, one thing I appreciate about you and, and the courage of your convictions is that you were able to look back at yourself and say, oof, I made this mistake and now I'm going to correct myself. Uh, I have a favorite quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, which yes. is, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of a little mind. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love that. Um, so my question is, how do we question ourselves ourselves constructively and act upon the mistakes that we have inevitably made in the past? <laughs> uh, that's a very person. That's a very personal decision. I mean, uh, mm. most people that I give this these opinions to think I'm nuts. Well, <laughs> I don't. They, so. <laughs> they, they, you know, I mean, the standard reaction is well. Sheckman's hypocritical because, of course, he published in these papers, and that's how he made his name. Or, yeah, Sheckman has a, a Nobel Prize; he can do whatever he wants. Uh, yeah, okay, but before I had the professional recognition that I have, no, no one would listen to me. <laughs> so now I have a little soapbox, and I intend to use it. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to ask you about the. Uh, uh, the second part that we talked about, the Parkinson's initiative and your involvement in it, and how the, how did that start, and yeah. what was yeah. what was the drive yeah. there? So I, I was, um, you know, still busy doing my work and my research and publishing papers in eLife <laughs> and serving as the editor and seeing the journal flourish. Uh, but all the while, for the for a twenty year period, my wife was in decline because she had Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. and it it kind of morphed into uh, dementia, which got worse and worse, and for which there's no medication really. And uh, I was approached as she was in steep decline <clears throat> by a, uh, the chief financial officer of the Sergey Brin Family Foundation. So Mr. Brin is the co-founder of Google, very wealthy man, uh, but he has a, a family, a genetic history of Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And his mother has the illness and he has a mutation in a gene called LARC2, which he shares with her. And so he is at some risk, but there are other factors that will influence whether he becomes ill. But given his perilous situation and you know his insight, he decided that he and his wealth, he decided that he would invest a great deal of money in research on Parkinson's. Much of it was devoted to the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which is a major philanthropic organization in support of Parkinson patient groups in the United States. But he decided independently that progress was too slow, that you know we've, had, we've known about this disease for 200 years. And although there are treatments that limit some of the symptoms, they don't really affect the progression of the disease. So he felt that quite independently that what we needed was a more focused basic science effort to get to the bottom of the, you know, this, the molecular 
and cellular aspects of initiation and progression of the disease. And so I was asked by this guy who's not a biologist, uh, who was his representative, what, you know, what I might do or what, what, what I thought might be done with some significant infusion of funds. And we talked and talked and nothing was resolved. And then when my wife died, I was asked to chair a, a meeting of neuroscientists that he had already established along with a young woman who now is the managing director uh, of, of our effort, uh, uh, Kemeny Riley. Uh, and I was asked to chair a meeting that they had set up. And, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but a lot of the genetics of Parkinson's relate to aspects of cell organelles and vesicle traffic. So I, you know, I've become familiar with this, this area of work. So I went to this meeting and I, I, I saw this as a, you know, an amazing opportunity. I mean, after all, my wife had just died. And here was, a, here was a carte blanche to do something about it. And so I stepped down from eLife and I embraced this uh, new activity. And over the course of the next couple of years, we had meetings with various other Parkinson's experts and funding agencies. And Kemeny Riley and I have established, established a, a program that has evolved into an international collaborative research network of teams of investigators, not just individual laboratories. And this was really a critical point in our, the evolution of our idea. So academic, in academic science, for reasons that we've already discussed, the reward structure favors the individual, that is the PI and his or her team. And that, you know, great, that works. I mean, I benefited from it. People at the Crick have benefited from it. Everybody benefits from it. But if you have a really tough problem, that has resisted an understanding for 200 years, then maybe you need to take a different approach. And so I thought, well, if we got together teams, and, and this is important, the team is not just a group of people who are willing to work on Parkinson's because you're dangling a lot of money in front of them. The team consists of individuals who have already been collaborating on something, Parkinson's or, or something else that may be relevant. So they know. What's involved in a, you know, we are encouraged to collaborate. People in the Crick are collaborating all the time. And these collaborations come and go. They are seldom really enduring. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it's because, you know, people get into arguments about whose name is going to go where on a paper. paper yes. stuff, stuff like that, or where to send the paper. And, you know, nonsense like that is not, there's no bearing on, on science. Yeah. So I thought if we had a reward structure that recognized that there are certain people who are really good at this thing, and let me tell you, this guy, Dario Lessi, was our, our poster child for this effort because he has, over a period of years, done amazing things by establishing collaborations with laboratories around the world. And he has a, he, he has a you know, he's, he's not ego-driven at all. And uh, so I wanted people like that. I wanted teams like he has, uh, and I brought. And so we put out a call for teams, and we now have 35 teams with 163 PIs in 80 different institutions in a dozen countries around the world. And when we finally got going, the pandemic hit, but that didn't stop us at all because we had already all, always planned to have this be an online network, and so we have a 
an, uh, an infrastructure that we built that brings all these people together in group meetings uh, online. And, uh, and they are asked to talk about new results and not just published results. They're asked to interact with people that they haven't met before. They're asked to post their work on the, on the bioarchive as soon as it's ready to publish. They're asked to share protocols, reagents, and publish all of the papers must be in an open access format. And so it's a, it's a huge experiment. We've committed almost a half a billion dollars and there's more where that came from. And uh, we now have to measure our success we'll, and we'll be developing ways of evaluating that, but it's going to be based, I guarantee you, not on the numbers of cell nature and science papers. It's gonna be based on how meaningful the collaborations have been to, to make discoveries. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm several years into this new effort and I'm real, my lights turned off here. Okay. It's fine. And yeah. so um, uh, I'm really excited. And, and the reason for my visit to Britain uh, last week was to visit with uh, a variety of the teams that we have. There are three, three separate teams in, at uh, UCL. They, they are actually our biggest funded center in the world. And then the, Dario Alessi's team in Dundee. And so I had a really good time visiting with all these places and have a good impression of their collaborative interactions. I mean, while you were describing this, I was actually very excited because I was always like, this is the kind of incentivized science I want to work yeah. in. Yeah. And it feels good that it already exists as a model, yeah. uh, especially around sharing protocols and sharing yeah. ideas oh, and yeah. having something where we are collaborating rather than competing. So yeah. it really makes me um, happy to hear that it exists. I have two more questions to finish. Uh, one is you talk about success. Uh, and one thing that this podcast is about is redefining success. And I'm wondering now that you have all the successes that one wants to imagine, or one can imagine, what do you now see successes for you? Um, I still like looking at data. I like, uh, you know, I like the experience of, um, working on a draft manuscript with, with someone in the lab and you know studying the data and criticizing it and finding new things to do. I, that's my primary driver. But I, I also, as I've grown older, I've, I've, I've learned to take pleasure in doing broader things. And this, I think, again, comes from the spirit that Dan Koshlin, uh, mm -hmm. you know, developed here, I think, or, or, or absorbed. And transferred to me, I've learned to be, by his model, a good citizen of science, which mm. means thinking about things beyond your own, the walls of your own laboratory. Mm. And uh, I feel really good about that. And I don't, you know, I, my, my research group is not as big as it used to be. And that, that's okay. I, I, I don't need, I, I, I enjoy doing these other things. I really enjoy going and visiting learning about new things and i'm on a steep learning curve in neuroscience i'm not a neuroscientist but i'm learning a lot and i really enjoy that yeah and the second question is i really love the art behind you and i was curious oh, yeah. <laughs> i was yeah. curious what it is uh yeah. and what does it mean for you yeah well you can't really see them but uh i could take a picture and send them to you there there are two um my wife and i did a little vacation in mexico 
when I was a postdoc in 1975, we went to Mexico City and the National Native Art Store mm -hmm. sell, sold among other things, native, in, native Indian tribe art. It's mm -hmm. called, it's yarn art where they make images uh, out of uh, yarn, very elaborate images. And you can't see this one, but the one that's just to my right on, on that wall over there, you can see it just a little bit. It's, I have to send you a picture. It, it, as soon as I saw it, it said, this is a cell. This is a eukaryotic cell. That's what it's I was got, thinking. It's got cilia on the outside and organized. There's a nucleus in, this, in the middle and organized. No, it has, it's not, it's some Indian spiritual thing, but wow, I, I thought this is, so I had to have it. And so I, I bought two of them and they're now precious possessions. And my daughter said, uh, she wants to inherit them. I, she has first dibs on these. So yeah, that, yeah. that was actually what I was thinking as I was looking at them. It really looks uh, like something you would put under a microscope. Yeah. <laughs> So Especially, I thought someone has done it specifically for you. <laughs> no, they have not. This was, okay. no, this was not done for me. This was done by some native Indian in Mexico. Wow. And uh, one thing which I love to hear answered to is what is an absurd thing about you that not many people know about? <laughs> oh God, oh God. Uh, now you're going to embarrass. Okay. So I'm, I tend in certain limited respects to be obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I arrange my, my socks in chronological order of use. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, would I would have thought color, but chronological. No, uh, no, it's, not, yeah. it's a little weird. So there you have it. Okay, lovely. Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I wonder if there's something else you want to share, which I haven't asked. Uh, and um, yes. Uh, well, one other thing that I feel very strongly about, but it's more of a concern in the US than in Britain because everything in Britain is public. In the US, there's a competition between public and private universities, which is good. I think that's a healthy competition. But I feel so strongly about public education. Uh, uh, I'm a product of University of California through everything except my graduate career, which was at Stanford. And I feel I've stayed here now for almost 46 years, in spite of offers to go elsewhere, because I feel, you know, I was a middle-class kid. You know, I, I only applied to, to UCLA. I didn't apply anywhere else. And, uh, and it was a gift. It was uh, the, the, the University of California was established um, with a, you know, for the benefit of the people of the state. And, uh, that investment continues to pay off, pay off handsomely. You, 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 higher education, I would say particularly public higher education is an engine of social mobility that is second to none. And I'm proud of the fact that it, UC Berkeley, for instance, leads the nation in taking kids who come from families in the lower 20% of the economic spectrum and moving, moving them up to the top 1%. Yeah. You know that 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 doesn't happen at Harvard or Stanford. Yeah. They take people who are in the top one percent and keep them there. Yeah. So yeah. that's a well. You have that too. You have a kind of a class structure in Britain too. But yeah. Well, I'm Serbian, so we had only public universities. Yeah. So for me, yeah. I definitely know what public university brings. Yeah. So yeah. 
then as a Serbian, you, you should also know about the um, history of this amazing woman, uh, Caitlin Carrico, a Hungarian emigre who basically, you know, has saved the world with her discovery that um, it's um, uh, modifications on, on uracil uh, are, uh, allow mRNA to be injected to produce uh, uh, an, an immune response. It, it, so that you should, uh, if, if you don't know her story, you should go to her Wikipedia page. It's, it's just heartwarming to see what she's done. Thank you very much. Thank all you right. for your time. Have a nice okay. day. Okay, good ch chatting with you. You've just heard the story of Randy Shackman, a professor of molecular and cell biology at UC Berkeley who won the 2013 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for his groundbreaking work on cell membrane vesicle trafficking. Currently, his lab is devoted to molecular description of this process in eukaryotic cells. Professor Shackman also coordinates a research initiative dubbed ASAP to advance targeted basic research and resources to uncover the roots of Parkinson's disease and is one of the pioneers and supporters of open access scientific publishing. Thank you for joining me on this journey and please share, like and subscribe so that these stories can reach more people.